0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and centre. What
2: will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action.
1: A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels
0: like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in.
1: This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. With Guy Johnson and Alex Steele.
0: Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years.
2: On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome. Tuesday the 16th of August. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I say we. Alex Steele over in New York. I'm Guy Johnson alongside her here in London. Alex, crazy things are happening out there. Crazy, crazy things. Equity markets are not doing anything exciting at a headline level. The S&P is up by three tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq's down by one tenth of 1%. Bed Bath & Beyond is up by 70%.
0: Love it. I love that. GameStop also uh, having another surge here. This is very familiar of the Reddit group retail trade rally that we saw that brought down Gabe Plotkin um, and Melvin Capital back in uh, 2021. Um, But I hate to say it, but, and I think I said this yesterday too, over the past two weeks though, they were right. So the the theory is you're going to go buy these meme stocks if you think that yields are going to come down very sharply. And guess what? They did come down very sharply when they first started rallying a couple weeks ago. So I'm just just saying, I'm just saying.
1: I do wonder what authorities are going to, are going to see in this, though. They're going to see a market that is still blessed with significant froth, I would argue. And you do wonder whether ultimately that yield move is almost self-defeating. Yields come down, meme stocks rally, Mm -hmm. the Fed goes, (laughs) enough of this, and hikes aggressively.
0: True. Also, I have to wonder, just, you know, looking at volume as well um, across the pond and here in the U.S., it, it, it's really light. And, you know, it's going to get even lighter over the next two weeks. So That's going to exacerbate some of these moves as well. So it's like how much how much can you really take seriously in all of this until September 6th?
1: I agree. But it's fun while it lasts. It's fun.
0: Uh, and we're here. we got to make news, right?
1: Absolutely. And and news is being made. Um, We'll talk about what's happening in the UK in just a minute. Real wages, sorry, real wages are something of an issue. Can you really not say that word? I I, I can. You can't? You're just messing with me now? I feel like I need more practice. I'm always messing with you. That's true. Um, Ditto. We're going to come back in just a moment. We'll talk about what's happening. We've got uh, employment data out today and CPI data out tomorrow. Uh, We need to focus on that. It's a really big issue and obviously having political implications as well. Before we get to all of that. Here's Mr. Charlie Pellet. I thank you very
3: much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Economists are growing increasingly pessimistic about the UK, with the risk of a recession now seen as far more likely than not, and interest rates expected to go higher than previously thought. That is according to the latest Bloomberg survey, which was carried out in the days after the Bank of England unleashed the biggest interest rate increase in 27 years and warned of almost two years without a quarter of growth because of the cost of living crisis. UK job vacancies fell for the first time since August of 2020 as real wages dropped at the sharpest pace on record, indicating a tightening inflation squeeze on consumers and businesses. The Office for National Statistics says the number of jobs employers are seeking to fill fell by 19,800 to 1.27 million in the quarter through July. Pay excluding bonuses and adjusted for inflation fell by 3% in the three months through June, the most since records began in 2001. American Airlines has placed a firm order for 20 Overture jets from Boom Supersonic, gambling that a market will emerge for a new generation of sleek aircraft that can cut transatlantic travel times by half. The planes will not begin carrying passengers until the end of the decade, aiming to fill a void left when the Concorde stopped flying in 2003. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: I'm all in on that one. It would be fantastic. I missed out on flying Concorde. I still deeply regret it. The idea of flying to the United States and arriving before you left still really appeals
0: to me. I can't quite wrap my mind around that one. Are you more tired or less tired? Like, What's your jet lag like in that scenario?
1: Presumably worse. Yeah, right? Yeah, because you you take off at 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 a crazy time in the morning, but you arrive pretty early, and then you've got the whole day in front of you. So that can't be a good thing.
0: But it'd be fun. Charlie would totally take that would. You're going to be in that inaugural uh, plane.
3: You know what, though? We've got one at a museum here in New York. I've been on board the plane loved that's it tiny. It, was tini- it, it's it was tiny it was tiny you sit
1: in the seats You're, they're absolutely tiny these things are not luxurious but they get you there fast
3: exactly the food is luxurious the view from 50,000 yep. feet is unbelievable but uh, uh, a guy like you i came very close to flying on it i looked at the price tag it was you know close to maybe at the time 4,000 pounds and then i said you know what that's that is eight trips at 500 pounds a piece across the atlantic And uh, all of a sudden, the rational side of me kicked in and I said, forget it.
1: yeah, none of us are going to be able to afford it for very much longer. Certainly here in the UK, that's the problem, Charlie. Yeah, yeah.
3: Because- nice
0: segue. Props to you on that. W- w-
3: but very briefly, guy. And and he's not, uh, let me he's do not it. done. No, 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 no but I was going to say, done. in in the waning days when they were trying to keep, when BA was trying to keep Concorde alive, yep. they had these crazy flights that would go from New York down to Barbados to cut oh, yeah. the amount of downtime that, uh, that they had. So I, I came I close to doing anywhere, that.
1: Flying to the Caribbean would definitely be up there, but as I say, even that that feels even more distant than flying to the New York. Charlie, we we better move on because we better talk about what's happening in the UK economy and the. You said it perfectly: the real wage issue here, which is falling far behind inflation. And a supersonic flight across the Atlantic feels even further out of reach. The Bank of England, we've got a situation where basically wages are rising too fast for the Bank of England to be comfortable with, but too slowly for the consumer to feel comfortable. That That was the way we started our conversation with HSBC CEO, UK economist Liz Martins, when she joined Alex and I a little earlier.
2: Essentially, we have to be careful what we wish for. If wage growth goes even higher than it is, then there will be worries that it will translate into pr- uh, consumer price inflation because firms will pass it on. Uh, but it will do something for the cost of living and help us a little bit with uh, the, the, the growth situation. On the other hand, if they don't, then inflation might come off sooner, but it will mean more pain in the near time. So it really feels like a it, it can't-win situation mm-hmm. here at the moment. Liz, how much do you think that real wages have the option to fall? Because we haven't seen
0: the electricity re-rating billion yet, right? From my understanding, uh, off is going to change how much
2: they can charge for your electric bill in the fall. Like how much worse could this number be? Yeah, unfortunately it could be considerably worse. Um, The numbers that we're working with in this calculation are sort of 8-9% over the period to uh, June. Um, But we think inflation is going to rise to 14% now in January. Now, unless wage growth picks up further, and of course it might, um, but assuming it carries on at these kind of rates, then you've got a much deeper squeeze on on real incomes. And actually, um, we think we'll have the biggest uh, squeeze in real incomes on record this year, and unfortunately, an even bigger one uh, next year.
1: So what does CPI look like tomorrow?
2: At uh, CPI tomorrow, we've got 10% year on year, so we're going into Ooh. double digits for the first Ouch. time. I think the consensus is slightly lower than that, but yep. um, yeah, it's definitely uh, picking up. And how um, high do you think it gets? Well, 14% is our new forecast. But to be honest, Guy, the sooner you publish your forecast, the gas price goes higher and suddenly you're out of date already. Yep. Mm-hmm. Even as we, were, we published um, earlier this week, and even as we were doing that, there was indications that maybe we'll get another uh, jump in energy prices in April, which could take it even higher. So to be honest, 14% now. Uh, we'll see what the government does, whether there's any policy response to try and keep those contained. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. potentially can I just
1: kind of follow up on that Yeah.
2: Point?
1: The government seems to be starting to talk about the idea that it can hide inflation,
2: mm. that
1: basically it takes the risk of this inflation and puts it on the government balance sheet. Is that a viable strategy?
2: So this is more an opposition policy, I think, at the moment, but, um, yeah, I think it it will work if you think gas prices are coming down, so you can temporarily hide it by capping it, taking the cost onto the state. But if gas prices don't come down, then you're going to have to keep on paying and paying and paying, massively increasing the budget deficit, or you stop paying and suddenly you've got a real spike in inflation, which makes it almost even worse than than coming incrementally. Guy, you, you have a fourth follower. or are you, are you good with that one? Or? No, just one. Just one. That was three. That you was three. Not
0: that we're keeping you track, but if we were. Okay, Liz, I'm, I'm just messing with him. Um, Liz, th- this feels like this puts the Bank of England in an even more terrible position. Like, does it make more sense then to quickly front load a lot
2: more hikes now based on the situation that we're set up for in the fall? Well, I mean, potentially, if you think this wage growth continues to, to, uh, to, to escalate and, and push on core prices, on the other hand, the Bank of England presented us with an incredibly gloomy set of forecasts a couple of weeks ago where they said, we think the UK is going into recession, we think unemployment's going higher, and we think that's going to pull inflation lower. So actually too much tightening um, could make all this even worse. So it's, an, it's a very tough decision for them. Um, uh, but, you know, I think ultimately they're going to go back to their previous cautious pace. So that they had a brief moment of what they called forceful action, where they hiked by half a point in August. I think actually having done that, now they will be more worried about all these growth risks um, and ultimately not forgetting that of course energy is not a part of inflation the BOE can do anything about um, and and go back to their previous uh, more gentle quarter point uh, pace from September. Is that going to do anything? Like is a 25 basis point hike going to do anything with these numbers that we're seeing? It's not going to do anything about the energy price increases. It's not going to do much about the uh, food price increases. But the bit the BOE is looking at, in theory, of course, is the domestically generated inflation. That's the wage growth uh, piece. And, you know, ultimately what monetary policy can do is say, all right, supply is constrained. It's much lower than it used to be. Um, We have to bear down on demand so that it's not bumping up against it. It's not pretty. Unfortunately, it means a slowing in the economy, maybe even a recession. Um, But that's what it's designed to do. I was HSBC's senior UK economist, uh, Liz Martin's. Uh, did you have another
0: follow guy, or or were you good? I'm just it was funny. <laughs> now you saw my point. We're joking because we usually do one-one. Neither of us <laughs> actually care if we step on each other's toes. We were kind of riffing on each other uh, all at the I last was, hour. I was
1: worried that you'd taken offense. Oh
0: please, no, you weren't.
1: I, you, genuinely, I was concerned. No, I feel you. Wasn't. I feel you need more airtime.
0: I do. I do. I mean, it really is my show, and Guy just hangs out in the it, show. This
1: is this is correct. Yes, um, I mean,
0: please, but back to the news um here's something else i I found kind of interesting uh in the wage data people over 65 are are staying in the workforce or going back in the
1: workforce more and
0: i wonder how that's going to also distort the labor picture
1: so so that is true and i think that's really important because there's a whole bunch of people that have basically gone missing from the uk labor market Mm -hmm. Um, but these people are basically being forced back because of the high cost of living but if you take a look at actual participation it went down because more and more people are sick
4: this yes. is the long-term
1: problem that the UK now faces is that more and more people are leaving the labour force because of long-term disability. And that is a major problem that is much, from a structural point of view, is much harder to deal with. If, if, if prices go up, you, people may want to come back into the labour market. That's a relatively easy transaction. Mm-hmm. Returning from long-term disability is a much more difficult transaction.
0: Do, do we know if that's COVID-related? Did they say anything about that? We're just it, starting it, to do studies it is on that.
1: Co- part of it is COVID-related, yeah. yes.
0: I mean... That's gonna. That's a huge. That there, as someone who was out for almost five months with or four months with long COVID, it is staggeringly debilitating, and I don't know. How, and there's no quick fix for it. It's not like you can pop no. a pill or go to rehab and then you're better. Like it is, and it, depending on what your job is, you're not gonna be able to come back and do that. I. I and then plus on Brexit, that just puts the labor market in a really yeah, exact spot.
1: So this is the issue that the Bank of England faces. Yeah. Um, and and this, this country is rife with stories at the moment about the fact that basically you've got all kinds of stuff lying in fields because people won't pick it. It is it is getting problem problematic.
0: Yeah. I think we just messed up our producer yet again. We guy. did. Uh, we did, it's, right? It's
1: going really well. Basically, we're going to take no breaks.
0: We're no breaks. And we're going to keep messing this, up throwing to tape is what's going to this, happen in the this next hour. This whole
1: half hour. Um, and, and we're just going to go from tape to tape to tape. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're just going to stay. Yeah.
0: We just can't keep time. Clearly. We can look at a clock and not understand the time.
1: (laughs) Yep. Uh, Anyway, you, you, we, we progressed from my bit of the show to your bit of the show now. Mm -hmm. BHP. Which is really exciting. It's commodities. Let's is. Let's talk about commodities.
0: Let's talk about the commodity world. BHP. Uh, world's biggest miner, had its highest ever full-year profit on record. Yes, you had record commodity prices, um, but they're also pretty optimistic on China as well, that it'll be a nice tailwind once they reopen and get out of COVID-19. I question whether or not that ever actually happens, but uh, anyway. Um, So, Bloomberg spoke with Mike Henry, the BHP CEO. It was Bloomberg's Heidi Strad watts and David Inglis, and this is part of their conversation.
5: Really, what we're saying is that against the backdrop of slowing global growth, we think China is going to be a tailwind on, on growth. We can see positive uh, growth supportive policy settings in China as they come out of uh, COVID lockdowns, a bit of stimulus in the months ahead. We think that over the next six to 12 months, China, if anything, is going to provide some stability to global growth and will help offset some of the slowing that we see uh, elsewhere.
2: At the same time, though, you're still building this war chest for these future-facing metals. But it's, it's, it's tough going, finding opportunities, right? You were rebuffed by Osmills. You were outbid by Twiggy earlier on in the year for the nickel project. So where are you seeing opportunities? Are prices still too elevated at this point?
5: So uh, we are seeking to grow in future-facing commodities, specifically potash, nickel, and copper. Last year, we triggered the first phase of uh, the Janssen project in Canada. So Jansen stage one, 5.7 billion US dollars. Uh, it's, it'll be our first project in potash but it opens up a pipeline of really attractive future growth in that commodity. If I come to copper and nickel, BHP holds the world's largest endowment of copper, second largest endowment of nickel sulfides, which is the more attractive of the the types of nickel that are out there. And we're looking to accelerate uh, the development of new options within the resources that we have. We've increased exploration spend, uh, we've become more commercially nimble in, in getting toehold positions in some undeveloped resources m and does remain a lever, but as you saw with Nourant last year, we will remain super disciplined on this front. As to OZ Minerals, uh, we've put on uh, um, in front of them a, a, a um, non-binding indicative offer, very compelling offer we think for for their shareholders. Um, over 30% premium to last trading uh, day, over 40% premium to 30-day uh, VWAP. Very disappointingly, they've chosen not to engage. But as I said, it's but one of many options for us to uh, to look to grow in these in these really attractive commodities. Mike, David here, then your outlook then on the copper market. Do you think we'll need more of this stuff these next 12 months, or do we have to start paring back our expectations because of the growth outlook? Well, so long term outlook for copper is really strong, both for copper, nickel, and, and of course potash. And that's off the back of these unstoppable global trends of decarbonization, electrification, population growth, increasing uh, uh, standards of, of living. All three of those commodities play to um, those thematics. Uh, Now, what happens over the next 12 months uh, really does depend on that uh, global growth outlook that we were speaking about uh, earlier. We believe China is going to provide a bit of a a growth tailwind, but we do expect we'll see slowing global growth uh, um, elsewhere. Uh, Over the short to medium term, we expect there's going to be a bit of oversupply in copper, uh, but then towards the tail end of the decade, we expect the the market to move back into balance, the world to need more copper projects, and that to be supportive of, of, uh, of, of pricing.
1: Mike Henry, the CEO of BHP Billiton, the world's biggest miner, talking to Bloomberg a little bit earlier on. Let's carry on the conversation and talk more about what is happening here. Bloomberg's Joe Doe joining us now on the line to talk about all of this. Joe, when you think about metals like copper, long term, as we electrify our economies, demand is going to be really, really huge. Short term, it could be quite bumpy. And costs are going to be rising as we go through this process as well. Which is the more important for investors to think about, do you think, right now? The longer term picture or the fact that it's going to be more expensive to get this stuff out of the ground and more expensive to get it into the real economy? How are these two forces going to come together?
6: I, I think it's a, I think it's a great question and one that is literally comes up on a every other day basis in my conversations with folks in this space or people who are looking to get back into the metal space and and I think you know like we we kind of spend so much on the day to day right we talk oh copper's up copper's down but when you when you talk to people looking at this on the long term horizon they just keep saying yeah I, I mean I just think the five year ten year view on this is really interesting Mm -hmm. and you know it's like we've already talked right like one of the things we're seeing is you talk to bhp you talk to rio you talk to any of these companies what kind of assets do they want they want copper (laughs) you know they want nickel right and and they're saying that because they realize that the demand on the horizon is and i think Mm -hmm. we've talked about this on the show before like Mm -hmm. beyond what anybody can really wrap their minds around
0: well joe to that point and i feel like i'm gonna pretend like I'm a CEO for a second. I would say something like yes, but that's why I really get into the quality of the asset because the quality of the asset will help offset any of the costs, et cetera, et cetera. But not every company is going to have amazing quality assets. Like how much really good assets are there at right now?
6: I think the concern is that uh, it's unclear. Um, you know, if you've got a – listen, Rio Tinto has a copper deposit in the middle of Arizona called Resolution. Uh, it's the, probably the highest grade of ore body available right now in the world. It's, it, it, if they can get it up and running and get the permitting and approved – You know, it would be the largest uh, mine for copper production here in in the United in in North America. I think I think it's got the reserves of you know that could meet up to twenty five percent of annual demand uh, for for copper needs in the United States. But yeah, I mean that's really the thing here, right? And you've got so many, and and this is something we also have to look out for as reporters: is you've got so many people in the space saying, "Well, we've got this you know project or exploration." you know, of some sort of battery metal, you know, do you want to report about us? And there are really a lot of questions around who has the best deposits and and what is real and and what is just, you know, a shot in the dark. And um, I I think that all these major mining CEOs are doing everything they can to find either junior miners that are out there with great deposits or continuing to do the exploration on their own. Um, And and I think they're just going to snap up Anything that basically comes in as, yes, this is a decent grade of copper or nickel or zinc or whatever it is, right, I, th- I think they're going to make, make a mad grab for these things.
1: How much are they going to have to pay for them? And I'm assuming that everybody now knows this in the industry. So mm-hmm. if, I'm a, if I'm a government, I'm going to be wanting more of the pie. If I'm labor, yeah. I'm going to be wanting more of the pie. Oh, yeah. If I'm a supplier, I'm going to be wanting more of the pie. How does that work?
6: Uh, well, it, it, it's like, uh, one, one executive was telling me recently, um, you know, they were specifically talking about Tesla, right? And it was like, listen, um, if you're right now suddenly thinking about how you're going to get your hands on specific deposits, you're already way behind everybody else who's been thinking about this now for sure. years. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I think that says a lot to, Everybody's just saying, listen, we're going to we're going to pay what we have to pay because the upside, you know, on on uh, the upside is, is just so tremendous. Right. Uh, I mean, you've got to like, listen, the United Steelworkers are heavily involved in a lot of these U.S.-focused, North America-focused projects and saying, hey, we're ready to be on site to do the work for you guys mm-hmm. for all of these to power, you know, the EV energy transition. But you got to pay us. But
0: you got to pay us. Um,
6: And you got to pay up. Yeah.
0: Hey, uh, Joe, I want to turn our attention to a tangential subject in the commodity world, and that's zinc. Um, A trafficker owned smelter, halted production of zinc um, because of high input costs, like diesel, electricity costs, I should say, electricity costs specifically. I, I have a couple questions around this. So, for oil, if you're an oil refiner and demand is so high and your margins can stay high, you don't really care what your input costs are. And I'm just wondering, shouldn't the economics of zinc be really awesome right now? What did you make of this?
6: It was it was an interesting decision. Uh, I mean, Nearstar, you know, this, this smelter in the Netherlands is, is a pretty well-known one. I think in our story, we we put out there that it accounts for 2% of, of global output. Um, what, what it really seems like is, is showing how Bad. The power costs are getting for so many Europe-based, uh, you know, industrial plants. I mean, ACOA had announced uh, a few months back that their San Cyprian alumina smelter they had to reduce production there, and they already had issues um, at that spot before the you know the power crunch. But coming out and saying effectively we're going to be stopping production until further notice, uh, you know, I think this is why it is a shock, right? Because you know, zinc, you're going to be making money on it, um, you thought. But uh, I think at some point the economics just don't make sense. Um, and, and and no matter, you know, how high zinc prices are going to go, I mean, it, you know, you really have to hit a high level for them to feel like they can offset the costs and the power costs that they're having to, to deal with here. You know, and, and smelters, whether they're zinc or, or copper or aluminum, they're just massive energy sucks, right? I mean, they, you know, like yep. I, I think I've said this before, The biggest uh, smelter just outside of Louisville uh, in the United States uses as much electricity per day as the entire city of Louisville. I mean, these things just use an incredible amount of power.
1: They're solid electricity, basically. That's That's what people tell me about aluminium. You think about aluminium, it is basically solid electricity. Um, Yeah. In terms of how this develops, if you are an energy producer, if you are a, a metal producer in Europe... What's the long term future? Structurally, it looks like energy prices are going to remain high in Europe, maybe not as high as they are now. But as you go through the energy transition, you could see a decade of relatively high prices.
6: Right. You, you could. And, and I think these are major questions that, uh, you know, EU officials are, are, are having in a very serious way. Right. And, I mean, we talk about we spend so much time here in New York and Chicago talking about the U.S., but I, but I think it is a big question in Europe, and and that is how sustainable or possible is metal making in the whole of Europe, especially when you've got China um, doing most, you know, so much subsidized production. They're half of the mm-hmm. consumed market. They're becoming half of all production, and they've got the infrastructure for being set up to make the battery metals, you know, of tomorrow. Um, and you know the the high costs are something that everybody is just adjusting to at this point. and I, And I still feel like all of these metal companies within Europe are still trying to figure out what what is the new normal. right? and And I think until they can figure that out, uh, you know, you're just going to see companies doing like what U.S. Steel is doing. They have a plant in Slovakia that, that does some uh, oil country tubular goods. They basically said we're just managing our costs as best as we can right now, and kind of waiting to see how the geopolitical circumstances and the power cost mm-hmm. increases um, play out before we can make you know big decisions on hey, do we need to shut this down, you know, or hey, are we just going to you know, you know, we're going to pull production back to a different level. Uh, I mean, these are the questions going on in C-suites.
0: Um, great stuff, Joe. Really, really, really appreciate the insight of Bloomberg's Joe Doe joining, joining us for everything metals-related. Um, and, Guy, I have to wonder if this also just goes to the structural inflation conversation that we have been having over the past few months, really. And Steen Jakobsen yesterday talking about that, too, of Saxo, is... Um, this is all going to exacerbate the supply problem. And this is a structural issue when it comes to, say, green energy. You're going to need the stuff. You need the stuff, even it's if it's a 10-year circu- picture. And that's it, a different yeah, inflation. It's,
1: it's circular, isn't it? And that's what's the weird mm-hmm. thing about this. We are going to need these metals to go green.
0: Yep.
1: But how do we get the metals if the energy price is as high as they are? Ultimately, energy prices will fall once we move to sustainable. once we move back to sustainable energy. That's the longer-term picture. This, in theory, should be a blip. But you could have structurally high inflation in energy for a decade or potentially longer. Yeah, how
0: long's the blip?
1: Which makes it really hard to make that transition economic, and, and it just becomes circular and more inflationary as the process unfolds, which affects the long-term discount rate and all of this. It's a really tricky picture for Europe. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable, with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele, on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening, you're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's a kind of check in here on the markets. It makes no sense. Uh, S&P is up by about three-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq still trading a little heavy, down two-tenths of one percent. That's a Zoom video communications thing, got a, a downgrade over at Citi. But it's also helping to lead the equities higher, as yes, Home Depot and Walmart, their earnings could have been worse, seems like one of the takeaways potentially. But also, you have the meme stocks. Oh, yeah, they're at it again. Bed, Bath & Beyond up uh, again today. You have GameStop. uh, That was halted for volatility. That's also up by 11%. We'll get to that in just a moment. This is despite the fact that a lot of the data that we got out of the U.S., particularly when it comes to housing, was pretty terrible. I mean, you had housing permits coming down 1.3%, but housing starts on a month-on-month basis down a whopping 9.6%. This is bad data. Market doesn't seem to care. Volumes also really light. So you know how I get to be skeptical about that. Those are the headlines here for you in the U.S. when it comes to the market. Let's get some other headlines for you with Charlie
3: Bell. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. And here's what's going on. Inflation at the supermarket hit a record in the U.K., pushing cash strapped consumers to buy own-label products as they grapple with the surging cost of living. Grocery price inflation hit 11.6% in the past four weeks, the highest level since Ketter started tracking the data in 2008. The stark increase means the average annual shop visit is set to rise by 533 pounds or 10 pounds 25 pence every week at a time when people are already trying to cope with soaring energy bills. It also comes as the budget grocery chain Iceland Foods will allow customers to pay for their groceries in installments becoming one of the first supermarkets to enter the buy now, pay later sector as households wrestle with swelling food bills. And the UK is about to get liquefied natural gas from far off Australia for the first time in at least six years, highlighting the European region's desperation in grappling with its worst energy crisis in decades. The LNG tanker Atalos is on its way to the UK with a cargo that originated at Australia's Northwest Shelf Project ship tracking Data compiled by Bloomberg show the vessel will arrive at the Isle of Grain terminal east of London on August 22nd. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: All right, Charlie Pellet, thanks so much. Would you do that, guy? Would you buy on a groceries on buy now pay later situation?
3: It's a That's tough
1: place, place to, to be, isn't it? I guess, yeah. I, so, what is interesting at the moment is that a lot of the credit data is not capturing the buy now pay later stuff. Yeah it's just not in the numbers. So while we see a slow increase, what appears to be a relatively slow increase in credit at the moment, and we are seeing it picking up, it, it basically is is not taking into account what is increasingly kind of the the biggest part of the market.
0: Yeah. I, I'm very... As someone who was in debt in her 20s, credit card debt in a big way, that scares...
1: Yeah, lot. I think it scares a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, let's get to the market. I mentioned Bed Bath and Beyond. I mentioned GameStop. The revival of the meme stocks, despite the fact that the data just is not that great. Uh, joining us here in the studio is Bloomberg's cross asset reporter uh, Isabel Lee. Isabel, thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Um, what's up with the meme stocks right now?
4: Meme stocks, so I wrote about that, I think, last week or a couple of weeks ago. She's My- like, I was ahead of you guys by three weeks, but what else? <laughs> My idea of time is a bit warped these days, but people are saying that the revival of meme stocks just speaks to how retail traders are feeling a bit more optimistic um, towards the stock market or how they're a bit more bearish or they're betting against the Federal Reserve. I mean, we know that the Federal Reserve is launching its most aggressive tightening monetary policy in decades. So it's a lot of things happening all at once, but it could also just be bored people at home. I mean, not to say anything or imply that they're not smart because some of them, if you read the Reddit chats, they're absolutely brilliant. But it really is a lot of things. But what I've been reading in the notes is that it's just never going to be back to the 2020 mania, mainly because we just don't have the money anymore. Like stimulus at that time was just flooding all of our bank accounts even my friends who have just enough um, they didn't really need to use it to pay rent they just put it in the stock market instead
1: Mm. to what extent is this also do with shorts last time around there was this kind of objective of squeezing shorts is that still at play here
4: it's still at play i haven't read anything that says it's, it's a record high or anything like that most of the things i've been reading keeps on saying it's elevated but not going to be the 2020 level so it's something that we're keeping an eye out for because it's it's interesting it took wall street by storm in 2020 everyone was obsessed about what's happening they were following it was a new phenomenon it was something that no one's ever heard of so now we're still keeping it under our radar but honestly it's nothing that's super surprising do
0: do we learn anything about whether or not this is uh the start of a new bull market or if we're in a bear market rally like can we draw any lines between the meme stocks and that conversation
4: So the biggest debate right now is exactly that. People are saying, is it going to be a bull market or a bear market? Meme stocks don't actually quite figure into that conversation from what I know. But what people are throwing around is this technical analysis that they say is almost... almost accurate. It's the 50-day moving average. So almost 90% of the S&P stocks are above their 50-day moving average. On Friday, that happened. And up until today, it remains to be the same. And in fact, today, less almost half of the S&P stocks have crossed the 200-day moving average. So many people are saying that that magnitude has often served as a springboard for further gains. But you also have some people saying, no, not quite. This is just a bear market bounce. And obviously, they can also churn out their own data on why this is just a bear market bounce, but that's really the biggest question of today. But I mean, for all that said, stock market is up, and it, Fair enough. it's I think a third straight days of gains.
1: Is that, the 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 market is really divided here at the moment?
4: Exactly. That, that I, the, nobody seems to know. Though. There's either on
1: one side of the fence or on the other. Is this a bear market rally? Is this the start of a bull market? it's almost kind of getting to the sort of religious zeal at the moment in terms of the the way people are positioning around this. But when you actually talk to them, what's their degree of conviction?
4: So it's really split, Guy, because if you look at it, the president's point in opposite directions. Like if you look at the stock market, yeah, this looks like the bear market is over. But if you look at the monetary policy cycle, it's, it's far too soon for a bull market. Because, for example, Keith Lerner of Truist, he said that it's almost never happened that... There was a bull market right before the Fed has tightened. And the Fed has just tightened. It's just begun. We're far from over. So it's like two things pulling into opposite directions. And I was talking to John Authors who helped me with this, and he was saying that, well, because there's one thing that's never happened in history, and it's the pandemic. So mm-hmm. it really threw a wrench to everything. And You can look at one analysis, other, but we've never had a pandemic, at least in the last century.
0: um, And and that begs the question, too, like are markets actively ignoring the Fed or they're just not listening? Because those things also will be different. Like, are they fighting the Fed or are they just ignoring it?
4: That, too. But if you look at it, I mean, corporate earnings are better than expected. We have a slew of economic data that points to, yes, inflation is over. Uh, It's really quite Honestly confusing. Every day I ask people, oh yeah, you're people. not alone.
0: Don't worry. Don't worry.
4: <laughs> and I'm like, "Can you tell me what's happening so I can tell my editor something? <laughs> and I can write something?"
0: And they're like, "I don't know." Make yeah.
4: <laughs> I, yes, some have said that. <laughs> wow,
1: that's Fair it. enough. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a degree of honesty uh, that that is kind of worth bearing in mind here yeah I, there's a lot of uh, everybody speaks uh, you, we talk to them on television there's a lot of conviction there but i think in reality when you go behind the scenes maybe a little Not less so. so much um
0: isabel thanks a lot we really appreciate your time today thank you for joining us isabel lee joining us from bloomberg she also uh works with john authors on his column as well so check out that uh every day on bloomberg opinion um and guy, to that point all you have to do is take a look at what we learned from 13 f's those guys don't know no those convictions are all over the place
1: Shinali Basek is going to join us next to discuss all of that. Much more still to come. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele is over in New York. Let's talk about what we're learning about what is going on in hedge fund land, family office land, basically what the big money managers are doing with their money. Stanley Druckenmiller, not to be confused with his namesake, Stanley Druckenmiller, his family <laughs> office has taken one of my
0: words i can't say let's give them some context here okay there are a lot of words i can't say
1: (laughs) i'm just just throwing it out there you shouldn't confuse these two people um very different very different approach to investing Mm -hmm, i can mm -hmm, tell you mm -hmm. uh stanley druckenmiller basically uh cautious on tech but you've got soros piling in to tech just before tech took off again It's a, I think it's just emblematic, this split, two kind of really big well-known money managers Mm -hmm. going completely different directions at the moment. And I think, Alex, this just speaks to how confusing this market is.
0: Yeah, Tiger Global, though, looking to sort of side with uh, Soros, they're also piling into a ton of big tech. They spent about $241 million to buy up some Alphabet shares. Also, I think with these guys, it's a distinction between, you know, tech, like the big fang type of stocks, and then overall technology.
1: Absolutely, but but I but I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that no at the moment nobody really knows, and and I think the fact that you've got really big kind of family offices going in very different directions, and we, and we get this information mm-hmm. through through the 13Fs. These are filings in the United States um, that basically give us information insight into what is happening with their portfolios. But, they are. They're all over the place. Yeah, and I think this is fas- I think this is fascinating.
0: No, I, I knew that was your point. I was just making a different point.
1: Okay, sorry. I mean, just in in revenge so, for the drunken Miller. Right,
0: just so we're clear. <laughs> um, but yes, your point. My point, they're they're excellent points. They're very well taken. Um, So enough about what Guy and I need to talk about in terms of 13F. Shinali's here. Save us from ourselves. Um, So we were talking about the distinction between uh, some betting on big tech and some not, and how no one really knows Just be clear. who Who was betting which way? Just...
1: Alex, if you could just lay it out for us again, that would be great. <laughs> no
0: problem. George Soros was betting on big tech stocks, and other individuals
7: were, were not <laughs> betting on big <laughs>
0: tech particularly, stocks.
7: Particularly Stan Druckenmiller, <laughs> yes, who was okay. a longtime Soros <laughs> protege, which is part of the reason this is interesting. Dory, I'm here for the hard names, guys. Um, cool. But, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the Bloomberg terminal data in aggregate, Family offices, I mean, these are billionaires and millionaires. In theory, they are nimble money, but they might be smart money. Smart money, yeah, the smartest of the money, actually, right? And so you you look at what they've done here, and they've sold off tech more largely in large form. Now there are certain exceptions. For example, Alphabet is one of the biggest buys of the second quarter. However, you are seeing sentiment really turn defensive and even sour when you look at those family offices and the fact that they haven't bought into other sectors much. That's a little different when you look at hedge funds that are really trying to claw their way back this year and take some defensive names. On to the table, more energy, more health care, some financials. But in aggregate, you are seeing a lot of uh, safety trading here.
1: Sure. Alex has got a question for
7: you. <laughs> 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 so that's how your day is going, guys. Uh, Oh, my God. This has been the last
0: two hours of our life. <laughs> Amazing. I was wondering who was going to blink first on that one. Um <laughs> Luckily, it's Shanali, and we're not doing this in front of actual. Am I going to be
7: asking the questions and answering them? <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs>
2: could you?
0: Because <laughs> that would be really helpful. <laughs> um, okay, um, my question—that's brilliant—is um, what is positioning like anyway, going into the end of the year? And what is a rally that makes no sense on an economic level with the data turning over sort of put pressure on these guys?
7: Yeah, it's funny because, I think you guys have been talking about it a lot, just look at it through the eyes of the strategist for a second here. J.P. Morgan's general bullishness and Morgan Stanley's general bearishness. And only one can really be right. Uh, at the end of the day, you look at a Tiger Global, and again, it's down 50% this year. 50% <laughs> in the first six months of the year. If, if that is the case for a number of hedge funds, even if you're 20% down, you are looking at a, a severely bruised portfolio that it does not have a lot of ability to make mistakes for the rest of the year. Not
0: if you're paying those fees. Yeah, and
7: that's what I'm saying. It, you, you're you just you're not only trading for the second half of the year, where things even if things were getting better, you may not have the same amount of uh, money on the sidelines to put to work. Had you not lost 50 percent
1: bed bath and beyond is up by 60 percent today is this i just how will the hedge fund community be feeling about this they got burnt badly last time around i funds have shut effectively because of these kinds of moves
2: it's funny I guess that
1: is, there, is there kind of are they worried about it? Are they cool with it now that they figured out what's going? On? I'm just wondering what is happening.
7: They've been so mixed on the marginal buyer. That's how you know that's the professional way to represent the meme stock trader, the marginal buyer. And on one hand, they really like that there's more activity in the market, you know. Uh, but if you're short, that's where it really hurts. And Bed Bath and Beyond, to your point, Guy, has been one of those perennial names that hedge fund managers have loved being short.
0: Yeah, for for good reason for some of it. But but I thought the short Shorts were all burned uh, in 2021, like they they the really big ones,
7: like the Gabe Plotkins of the world who, you know, were known for shorting. But there's plenty of other funds out there that are happy to be short in this market, albeit at a price. And we have not seen this kind of meme trading happen in a while, uh, and for what it's worth, the idea that people might have money on the sidelines left still to spend, you're seeing that flow through through some of the earnings stories, and when you see it hop up in the market again like this, uh, makes you fairly confident about the consumer.
1: Uh, my turn. Okay. Guy
7: has thoughts. That was totally <laughs> your pickup there. <laughs>
1: No, wasn't I asked the last question?
0: No, I did. I had a comment. Oh.
1: Okay, guys. I, the I'd,
0: weirdness. I, okay, she's like, I'm just gonna take it for the next. 10 yeah, minutes. I'm just
7: taking it. The the weirdness <laughs> of it is, it's not even. Oh, just. I think
1: we gotta talk about this show. The weirdness.
7: The weirdness. Oh. <laughs> no,
0: go, <laughs> Shanali, Say smart
7: things. Well, <laughs> look at Carnival. Also up almost three percent today, and it's, But that was for a reason. That was bookings. It's bookings, but you're seeing you know more volume and more activity kind of come into these names. I think Carnival. The reason that yes, fine, booking data. Comes in strong, but you know you take a look at Zoom on the other hand, and some of these kind of pandemic darlings, if you will, or you know, uh, return trades are, are yeah, Zoom is down almost five percent on the day. So I think it's interesting. Are these moves still going to be exacerbated a little bit because we're seeing the quote unquote marginal trader enter into mm-hmm. the market still? Some would say that's really healthy, despite some of the shorts being really squeezed out
1: in theory bulls and bears should have completely different views of the world right now do they
7: no because everyone's looking at the same data aren't they and they're saying it could go either way and the question does not become how where does the year end up it is how long are we in a tough spot for i you know you, we were talking to greg fleming the three of us earlier CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management. And the point that he makes is, you know, at what point is the point at which Fed funds and CPI start to cross? Mm-hmm. It's a lot higher than a lot of people think, at least in the world that he lives in. That's what everybody keeps saying. It's
0: 4%, some say 5%, yeah. uh, some say 8%. Um, runs the gamut. All right, Sean Basak, we will release you into the world of intelligent people. Thank you so much now uh, a smarter uh, for joining us. Over. <laughs> Well, you guys are different. You're both pretty. Um, Michael McKee uh, I'm joining taller. us. <laughs>
1: Bloomberg That's all Economics. I can
0: say. Oh, this is not going to be good, guys. We, we still have like <laughs> eight more minutes to go. Um, all right, Mike. Economic data. That's where we are. Housing starts not good, permits not great, retail sales tomorrow. Um, what's your takeaway from housing?
8: Uh, Well, housing is doing what the Fed thought housing would do and wanted housing to do. When they raised interest rates, mortgage rates went up, people stopped buying houses. And as people stopped buying houses, builders started or basically started fewer homes and uh, are planning on building fewer homes. There is a data within that report about housing completions, and those are up. So they're still building or they were still building a lot of houses, and that's going to be – On the market, we don't know whether it's going to be an inventory overhang or not. But uh, housing is starting to slow down. And it's the most interest rate sensitive sector of the economy. So it's what the Fed wants to see.
1: If you want to have a soft landing, housing has to land softly. It can't repeat what it did last time around in 2008. Do you think – is that – when you talk to people, economists, looking at this – do we think that the house builders are going to be smarter this time round? That they will be able to manage the cycle better? Because that strikes me as being absolutely critical. You can't just build, build, build until things break. You've got to manage this through the cycle. I think that that is
8: the case. And we saw a lot of the... Um Irresponsible home builders go out of business in the yep. last crisis. So I think those that did survive have learned a lot. There's another but factor. We, but do we
1: know? I'm sorry to jump in. Do we know how much gearing there is in the system? Last time around, there was loads of gearing. This was a heavily yeah, much, geared much sector. Less. There was lots of debt.
8: Yep. Much, much, much less. Uh, the subprime sector is much smaller. And at this point, um, the foreclosure levels are are well within normal levels. Uh, they haven't really picked up that much. But the other factor that's at work this time is we have all these private equity guys who've bought up all these single homes. Yeah, true. And we don't know what they're going to do. Um, they they probably will not dump them on the market because they'll lose money. But uh, if people aren't buying houses, they're going to rent. And so that may take up more of the housing stock. And if homes, these housing completions... Are on the market and the price falls, then maybe private equity snaps up even more of them. So it's mm-hmm. sort of a wild card out there.
0: Um. Also, we've seen some housing can- a lot of cancellations, right? I think it was like sixteen percent of potential deals. Yeah. Were yeah. Canceled. If you if you went What's into normal? the
8: new car uh, new a new home builder's uh, model home and said this is a great house for three <laughs> percent,
0: right? At six percent, and, and then at six percent, you may 5%. be mm-hmm.
8: changing your mind.
0: Um, I'm going to jump in. I'm just going to do another one. Cause, you go you know, go for it. I'm Honestly, do
1: it. Take it away. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's like, see you tomorrow. Um, Okay, so that sets us up sort of uh, for where the consumer is. So what does that mean then for retail sales tomorrow? Also kind of wrapping up, we learned about Walmart today.
8: Yeah, uh, retail sales is probably going to be reasonably good. At least the reports we're getting from the big discounters are that they have not seen a huge fall off. But this is backward-looking data, not forward-looking data. So July was probably okay. There have been anecdotal reports on the Johnson Red Book series uh, that tracks weekly sales, Uh, it's not an easy convert into the monthly numbers, but it has gone up sharply in the last couple of weeks, which you'd expect because it's back to school time. But uh, it does seem that the consumer is hanging in there. The interesting thing is if we see strength in goods buying, which is basically what the retail sales report is about, does that mean less services buying? Or if we still see a lot of services then that suggests very strong consumer spending.
1: But, but I'm assuming that the housing market is going to slow down, which is the – this is how the transmission mechanism works. Housing market slows down. People buy less durables. Right. And that's how it starts to filter out into the wider economy. There are other transmission mechanisms, of course. But but how strong is the relationship between retail sales and what's happening in the housing market? I'm assuming the housing market is the lead indicator here.
8: Well, it's it's a – in a number of categories, it does lead, and we do look at uh, how uh, at retail sales x gas. We've talked about that uh, for for those reasons, and x autos and housing, uh, building materials, because those are counted in separate categories. So the the retail sales control number we get will be a better view of what overall spending is like. But we did see in the most recent conference board survey of, of consumer buying plans that fewer people are planning on buying appliances and carpeting and things like that. So it is starting to show up.
0: Um, I also wonder what the psychological effect is in that this the wealth effect. Like all of a sudden if you thought you could sell your house for eight hundred thousand dollars but now with higher mortgage rates you can only sell it for six hundred, like you don't feel as as wealthy, quote-unquote, even if it's just in paper, and that disrupts your psychology. Whether or not you're going to buy a new stove, it's going to disrupt how you feel about your money.
8: Yeah, that that does play into it, much more so than the stock market does, because the average person doesn't have much in the stock market, and if they do, it's in their 401k. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're uh, not thinking of stock market assets. But they do look at their houses. And for a long time, they looked at houses as ATMs. And that's not really happening so much anymore. And of course, refinancing activity just died when rates went up because most people have refinanced
1: into lower rates.
8: Not as low as Alex. I know we're supposed to, you know, that's like the, yeah, yeah, no, we the can thing do that. we're supposed yeah. to throw in there, guy.
1: I mean, she's, ma- definitely, she's definitely going to be happy playing that game. I, my cash out, talk refi, is <laughs> 2.85%. <laughs> but hmm? she does want to talk about rates. Yeah.
0: Always. <laughs> Just the mortgage ones. Uh, but your point, my cash out, seriously, all seriousness, my cash out refi was 2.85%. Yeah. That's nuts. That is now, crazy. Now, I would yeah. never do it.
8: Yeah. And that's you, your... You have a lot of company in that. So that's uh, a stimulant to the economy that has been removed. So that is one thing to keep an eye on, as, as uh, Guy was saying, for the economic okay. effects from housing.
1: The irony of all of this is that Bed Bath & Beyond, which sells a whole lot of this stuff that you put in a house, is tracking massively higher. If you took that as a lead indicator, you'd be assuming that everything is right and yeah. dandy.
8: <laughs> but you wouldn't because, of course, it's a meme stock in this case. The company Absolutely. is a lot, but in a lot of I'm, trouble. I'm on
1: the website. They sell mini fridges. They sell microwaves. They sell coffee and coffee makers. They sell but they all
0: also, the stuff. Do, it, also a back-to-school thing. The the it segment.
1: says college basics under mm-hmm. $40. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buying sheets did, and towels.
0: Did you just discover Bed, Bath & Beyond?
1: Pretty much,
0: yeah. He's like, they sell microwaves. (laughs) They They used to have one here
8: by the office in uh, in New York, and it closed. Did it close? Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. I spent a lot of time in Bed Bath and Beyond, just in Massachusetts, case we were wondering. So much.
1: There's a lot of Beyond, though. There's a lot of Beyond.
0: Exactly. There's a lot of beyond. They do have a good makeup section, though. They've like really gone into consumer products.
1: That part um, I missed.
0: Alright. Mike, thank you for helping us get through the last eight minutes. I uh, <laughs> hope you guys enjoyed the show. You listened to The Cable. It was great. Uh, it was fantastic. I'm Bloomberg DAB uh, Digital Radio. Markets kind of go nowhere. Meme stocks definitely uh, getting another leg higher here. We'll catch you guys tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.